So we're in that unique season of the year where as we sing about come Lord Jesus come, we're kind of in between and celebrating both comings, right? The song is about his second coming that we all await for that will finalize everything, but we're just entering the Advent season where we celebrate the first coming. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I do want to welcome everyone and say happy Thanksgiving weekend to those of you who are worshiping online, as well as those of you who are here. Uh, it may not have been the Thanksgiving that you usually have. Uh, some of you had exactly what you usually had, but some had to sacrifice because of COVID, but we've been doing that for several months. We'll continue to do that in the future, but I trust you still enjoy all the leftovers, right? Plenty of time for leftovers in this weekend. Uh, and before I start on the message, I do want to make mention of the weekly email that I sent out uh, just before Thanksgiving, announcing that I'll be going on a medical leave and I have surgery scheduled, and just say, first of all, thank you for the incredible response. So many of you responded to that, and I appreciate it, especially those who said they would be praying. I covet those. Um, the surgery is actually scheduled for a week from tomorrow. Uh, December 7th, and I would appreciate your prayers for that as well as patience in recovery. Uh, if you are actually a regular attender, and I know we have uh, some who are watching online that are not regular attenders, but if you are and you're not getting the weekly emails that I send out, you can sign up for them. Just contact us um, at hello at princetonalliance.org, hello at princetonalliance.org, and we can make sure that you get those and keep updates on me as well as everything that the church is doing, okay? But today is the beginning of Advent because Advent is the four weeks, the first four Sundays before Christmas Eve when we celebrate the coming of Christ. Um, so we're in the Christmas season uh, and we're beginning that today. The Latin, uh, the word uh, Advent actually comes from the Latin. It means coming or arrival, so these four weeks are preparation. We're preparing our hearts. We're preparing our minds uh, for the first arrival of Jesus in anticipation of his second arrival as we get into the Christmas season. Did you know that each week in the four weeks of Advent season have a very special meaning, very specific to that week itself? Did you know that? It's changed a little bit over the centuries because this has been true for centuries, um, but basically, here's what it stands for. Uh, week one stands for prophecy and all the prophecies that pointed up to Jesus being born the first time. Week two is for hope. Week three is joy. And week four is love. Now, each of those weeks also stand for a particular person in the Christmas event. So when we celebrate week one, which is this week, that's the week celebrating prophecy. We celebrate the prophets who foretold, but particularly it stands for Isaiah, who is so specific in his prophecies of the first birth of Christ. The second week, hope, stands for Mary and Joseph. The third week, joy, stands for the shepherds. And the last week, love, represents the angels who brought the good news to the world in the first place. Okay? And it's many times represented by an Advent wreath, circular wreath that has four candles, each a different color, to represent those four um, 
those four weeks of Advent that I just described. But then in the center, there's a fifth white candle, and that stands for Christ himself, and we light that one on Christmas Eve. So we've just begun the Advent season, and we're going to celebrate that. However, we're also in our Read Through the Bible in a Year plan as it happened, and we don't want to veer from that. So we're going to stay with that. As you read each week, we're going to be speaking on Sunday specifically to the scriptures that you read that week. But we're going to choose those scriptures because there are many that we're reading through these last four weeks of the year um, that really point to Christ. And so I'll be doing that first this week. And I think I have the easiest job of the four weeks simply because this week in our weekly reading, we read from the book of Galatians. And Galatians chapter 4 is perfect for the first week of Advent. So I'm going to read that to you, but let me give you a little background on the book of Galatians first. This is a letter that Paul was writing to a small church in the province of Galatia, and he's warning the people there who are already believers because they're beginning to wander from the truth that Jesus' work on the cross is 100% sufficient for our forgiveness of sins. And they're beginning to wonder if maybe you still have to follow the Jewish law. And so he's trying to stop them from moving away from the truth, which is Jesus is all we need. It's all about Jesus. And so he writes this book to them. And I want you to understand that background. Otherwise, you won't understand the first few verses of chapter 4. But in order to even understand it better, I'm going to start before chapter 4 at chapter 3, verse 23, um, and then read through uh, verse 7 of chapter 4. So here's what it says. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Beginning in chapter 4, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So what Paul is trying to say is the time of the Jewish law had passed. Don't go back to that. It's finished. It was a time when, that's when he uses the word guardian. We were under the guardianship of the law. That time is completed. It's Jesus alone, and he's the only one you need. That's what he's trying to say here. Now, then he uses this phrase, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. Now, have you ever wondered why it took so long for God to send Jesus? You ever think about that? 
I mean, there were people around for thousands of years before Jesus came 2,000 years ago, right? Why wait so long? Maybe some of you never thought about that question. For some people, it's actually a huge stumbling block even in coming to faith because they think, well, if Jesus is away and he waited that long, if God is so nonchalant about something that's so central to getting to know him, then I'm going to be nonchalant as well. Why did he wait so long? But as we celebrate the beginning of Christmas and the first week in Advent, I want us to celebrate what I just read. I want to read verse 4 to you again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And what I want us to do is focus on that one phrase. When the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time had come, that's when God sent his son. And I want us to understand that better. So first of all, let me look at the words, okay? The two words, fullness and time. The word fullness, of course, originally this was written in the Greek language, all the New Testament was, and the Greek word is pleroma, pleroma. And it means exactly how it's translated, full, but it means completely full, like there's no room for anything else. In fact, it's used 17 times in the New Testament. One of the times is when, if you remember when Jesus was here, he did a couple of miracles that were about feeding large groups of people with a little amount of food, right? He fed 5,000 with three loaves and two fish, right? And then he fed 4,000 again at another time. In Mark chapter 8, when he refers back to that, he asks his disciples, how many baskets full of leftovers did you pick up? There were seven baskets. And he's saying, how many baskets were there that you couldn't even put another piece of bread, not even one more scrap in, because they were completely full. It's the same word used when we're challenged in the New Testament to be filled with the Spirit. Don't follow God 80% or 90%. Don't leave any room gaping in your life, in your heart, but give him 100%. Be completely filled with the Holy Spirit. It's also used in referring to Christ when it's talking about how he is fully God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, for in him all the fullness, the pleroma, of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay, he's fully God. He's not part God. He's not 99%, 99.9%, right? He's fully God. In John 1.16, the word is used after John describes Jesus as the word that became flesh and then dwelled among us in the person of Jesus. Then he says, from his fullness, he says this. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. This unending grace that's always available to us, no matter when we need it, how much we need. He never runs low because he's completely full, not only of who God is, but of what God does. And so we receive the benefits of his fullness. Um, there's a Thai word, a Thai word meaning full, and the word is them, them. And I like that word because full, you know, that's sort of got a ring to it. We know what it is because we can speak English. But if something is them, and they sort of say it that way, it's 
them now. You know, it's got this forcefulness to it that there's not even a sliver of light left to put anything into, right? My wife and I received, uh, someone gave us a Keurig coffee brewer, I think. I'm pretty sure it was my daughter, Stephanie, who gave it to us. Um, and I kind of like to brew my own coffee, but I use this every once in a while. We're using it more and more just because it's quick and convenient. Um, but I like my coffee strong. So when I put it in there, there's these two pictures of a small cup and a big cup. You know, those of you who have these know this, right? And so I push the small cup because in my mind, I think, well, I'm going to get stronger coffee, right? You got the same amount of grounds, less water going through it. Voila, I'm going to get stronger coffee. But it always just, it never fills my cup, right? There's always a gap. It's not a full cup when I do that. So one day, when I, right before I used it, I had a little bit of brewed coffee that was left over, and I thought, oh, you know what? I'll just pour the brewed coffee in first and fill up some of the cup, and then I'll use the Keurig, and I'll have a full cup of strong coffee, right? Don't ever do that, all right? Do it the other way. Let the Keurig fill it first and then fill it. So I just guessed at how much I should put in the cup, and then I put in, punch the button, and I'm watching it come up, come up, come up, and then it's all of a sudden, uh-oh, <laughs> It's not going to hold it all, right? So I'm reaching for paper towels because it's about to overflow. And literally, like, it, it gasped its last breath, and the last drop came out, and it was all the way to the brim. And so I went, oh, before I realized that I still have to pick it up. And there's no way I'm picking it up. And of course, I wasn't able to pick it up without spilling it, okay? But that's what the word fullness means. It's completely full. Okay, that's the word fullness. But what he's talking about is a completely full time. Now, there's two words in Greek for time. And uh, some of you may know this because we talked about this before when we were starting our latest church plant, Kairos Church, because Kairos is one word for time. And we explained the difference between Kairos and the other Greek word chronos. Because kairos means not telling time and the tick of the clock and a minute and then an hour and then a day goes by. It means more like opportunity. This is the right opportunity. And then chronos just means time. Time as it passes. The minute that passes, the hour passes, the day. It's just the word time. If I were to ask you, which of these two words do you think the Bible uses here, my guess is you would say kairos. It was the full, perfect opportunity. But in actuality, the word that's used here is chronos. It's time. God is literally saying in the absolute perfect time of the whole history of the world, it was the right year, it was the right month, it was the right week, it was the right day, it was the right hour that he sent his son. Now... I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but that's what it means. Fullness of time means perfect timing. Perfect timing. For those of you who are football fans, you know what perfect timing is, right? Um, because the quarterback and the receiver, they have a play going, and the receiver is going to run a certain pattern, and the quarterback's going to release the ball. 
but he's going to release the ball and send it to a place where the player hasn't gotten to yet. He's just an open space because he knows the pattern that the receiver is going to go out and come to so that when the receiver gets there, the ball is already there, right? And when it happens, you know, and they replay these over and over, you're amazed at how the perfect timing came together. Well, basically what God is saying here is the replay of when Jesus was born is perfect, that God, through the past, sent his son at exactly the right moment, and the world caught it at exactly the time that the world was supposed to catch it. There's a parallel verse to Galatians 4.4. It's from Ephesians chapter 1. It'll come up on the screens. It says this, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All things, because of the timing that God had, will come together, things in heaven and things on earth, because of when Jesus was born. Now, that just describes what that phrase means. But have you ever wondered uh, why 2,000 years ago was the perfect time? Like, why was that the perfect time? Well, I have suggestions for you this morning, and I'm going to run through those suggestions with you. I actually have seven of them. Here's seven reasons that I believe that when Christ came that first time, what we celebrate on Christmas Day was exactly the perfect day. Reason number one, the Jewish law had done its work. The Jewish law was finished. It was over. It had done its job. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul is saying in Galatians. He's trying to tell the people of Galatia, it's done. Don't go back to the law because it's over. It's finished, right? The time has gone. And he uses the word guardian there. It was a guardian for us. Because what the law had done has shown that we as people, no matter who we are, no matter what our background are, are terrible followers of the rules. (laughs) That if we know all the rules, we're never going to keep them. That we may keep some, but the ones we don't like, we're going to break. It's always going to happen, and it doesn't matter who we are. In spite of all God's patience, in spite of all the favor that God showed on his people under the law, they still broke the law and went their own way. The world now has a perfect picture of how depraved we are when normally we try to think about how good we are, right? But the law has shown us that's not the case. So that's my first suggestion of why this was the right timing. Secondly, The first church in Jerusalem was very far from Rome. Now, your first reaction might be, so what, right? What does that have to do with Jesus' coming? Well, because Rome was the center of everything. By the time Jesus came, it was when Rome had conquered almost all of the known world, right? And so the center of all the known world was indeed Rome, which was very far away from Jerusalem. So if something new starts in Jerusalem and Rome wants to control everything, they don't like new things happening, they want to keep the order as it is, they're not going to find out about it right away. 
They're not even going to be interested in it right away. It's really far away from the center of their attention. They're focused on just around the vicinity of Rome first and then closer to it next, but not way out here where the church is. So the church has a chance to grow as something new before actually Rome takes any action, and they did eventually persecute the church because of it. So that's another reason that this was the perfect timing. Reason number three has to do with the first reason about the Jewish law being over, and it's the proliferation of synagogues. When did synagogues come into play? Well, it goes back hundreds of years before Christ when Jerusalem was conquered by Babylon, and the Babylonians destroyed the temple. That was the only building for the Jews. That was where they did all their worship. They centered everything on there. They would come together even long travels to celebrate the special days there. Now that was gone. Not only that, the Babylonians took all the Jewish people from Israel, and they scattered them everywhere. So now they're all over the world. They have no central building. They're still going to follow their faith. So over those centuries, they began to build synagogues. So in every place where the Jews are, especially in the major cities, there are synagogues. Now, you still may say, what does that have to do with this being the right timing. Well, because when the church first started in Jerusalem, it was all Jewish believers coming to faith, and it took them a while to realize that this good news was for Gentiles as well. They believed it was just for the Jews. And so when they first scattered, whether they did it intentionally or they did it because of persecution, they would move to different cities, and the first thing they would do is say, well, I've got to talk to some other Jewish followers because of this, ah, there's the synagogue. They know exactly where to go to start preaching about the gospel. And it made it easy because you had this proliferation of synagogues everywhere over the Roman kingdom. Then my fourth suggestion is this. The world was full of spiritually starved people. The world was full. Now, you might be able to say that actually of every generation, every century, right? Every continent, every country which is probably true, but at this particular time, the worship of pleasure, the worship of self, the worship of other gods, the worship of different philosophies, they had all run its course, so many places, so many thoughts, and there were still hungry people that are saying, none of this works. They're still feeling empty and barren. A good example of this is in Acts chapter 17, when Paul goes into Athens, And he goes into Athens, and it's full of idols. They kept building one after another. Well, this one didn't work. Maybe I'll ask this one, or ask this one, or ask this one. And then they were afraid they missed somebody, so they even had an idol to an unknown god that they put up there. And so they were starving after something, and they were always talking about religion and philosophy at that time. And Acts 17 actually specifically says that when Paul went into Athens, he spoke with the Stoics, and he spoke with the Epicureans. Now, there are many versions of Greek philosophy. These are only two, but they're at the extremes of everything the Greeks came up with because the Stoics basically believed that happiness comes if you deny yourself pleasure. And the Epicureans believed that happiness comes only if you don't deny yourself any pleasure, right? Completely opposite viewpoints, and what Paul is saying is, 
not only those people, but all these other philosophies in the middle, that's what he engaged with when he went in there. It was unbelievable. And none of them were meeting the needs of the people, and the soul was now ready for something new, something that really worked and filled the emptiness. Suggestion number five is Greek influence. Before conquering the known world that Rome did when Jesus was born, Greece did it first. Through Alexander the Great particularly, they spread over most of the known world, and they conquered the known world, and it was under Grecian control, and two things happened. The first thing was it spread the Greek language, so there became a common language that everybody spoke. Greek was spoken all over, and even after the Romans took over, Greek was still the language that was spoken everywhere, right? Now, what difference does that make? Well, it makes a huge difference for the first missionaries because they grew up speaking the Greek language no matter where they came from, and now no matter where they would go in the known world that they knew of, right, they were able to speak the same language and communicate with the people and not have to learn another one. And I know how difficult it is, right, because I spent 14 years in Thailand, but the first two were all about just learning the language so I could speak basically enough to communicate the gospel to people, right? They didn't have to worry about that. So you had this Greek language that had spread across the world. But secondly, they provided a culture, a culture that was open to new ideas. In fact, I refer back to what I already referred to, Acts chapter 17, Paul in Athens. When he goes in there, they have all these idols up, they have all their specific philosophies, but he goes into this great big amphitheater, and they said, hey, let's hear yours. You got a new one. They're totally open to new ideas, and many of the people were, okay? So that set it up, but... It's still not the perfect time because something was missing. Greece didn't do everything that was necessary to make it the perfect timing. My suggestion number six is the world was at peace under Roman rule. Wasn't the case under Greek rule. Although the Greeks ruled the world, they weren't able to keep a hand on it as well as the Romans did. And the Romans did two things. They brought peace to the whole area and they began to build these wonderful roads that took you anywhere easily, okay? So first of all, they had this piece. It was called the Pax Romana, so that the whole world was an open door. You could travel anywhere. It, it wasn't nearly as dangerous as any time before this, even under Greek influence. So missionaries could go anywhere real easily, and that's where the road system came in. The new road system actually did two things. It allowed the missionaries to go out and be able to travel anywhere they wanted to easily, but it brought commerce, new commerce, into all the major cities and a lot of trade. Uh, the economy was booming, but people were coming into major centers where most of the first churches were receiving the gospel and then being converted and going back to where they came from, and it made it spread even further out to the edges of the Roman kingdom. I have one more suggestion why this was a perfect timing. Finally, under Caesar, for the first time, the world was to be taxed. And we read that in the Christmas story that's in Luke, right? That the only reason that Joseph and Mary, who lived in Nazareth, would go down to Bethlehem was because they had to be taxed. For the very first time, 
you had to go to the center where your lineage started, and theirs was in Bethlehem to be taxed according to the prophecy of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. That's what had to happen. Perfect timing. The centuries God set up and let the world take its course, but had it exactly where it wanted to be, and then send on the exact moment necessary Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem. The fullness of time. Christmas occurred exactly when it was supposed to. It really was perfect timing. And I hope, all I want you to do is understand that and celebrate it with renewed faith. May we be in the awe of a God who knew exactly to the second what he was going to do in this fullness of time when it was them. It was absolutely them. And nothing more could fit in. That's when he sent Jesus. Now, what I don't want you to miss as well, very briefly, are the three results that are mentioned in this passage of Jesus' coming that are ours. Because he uses three words. And the three words are redeem, son or daughter, and heir. Redeem, son and daughter, and heir. He came to redeem. The passage tells us he came to redeem. And Ephesians passage says, redeem everything. Redeem everything in heaven and on earth. So you get redeemed. I get redeemed. The planet gets redeemed. Time, Kronos, and Kairos get redeemed. It all comes under God's control. Secondly, you become a son or a daughter. It really means, he uses the word son here, but he means a child. You become a child of God. There's no closer relative than you can have than your children, right? You're as close to God as you could possibly be, and you are worthy in his sight when you choose to follow Jesus to be called his son or daughter. Remember that this Christmas. And then you're also an heir. You get everything that the father has. You're not just a son, you're also an heir, and he holds nothing back. Remember I referred to John chapter 1, verse 16? The fullness of God allows us to receive grace upon grace upon grace. It's unending what he has for us. All of this helps us to really respect the full meaning of what we celebrate on Christmas in that first birth of Jesus, which, by the way, if you hadn't heard, was in the fullness of time. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for your incredible insight and your marvelous wisdom that put all this together. Thank you, Father, for your word, which lets us know and gives us that comfort that your timing, not just for Christmas, but for everything, is always perfect. Your time, there's so many times we'd question that. We might question it personally. We might question it about this event. But your timing is always perfect. We can trust you. If you took this, the birth of your son, the most crucial and central part of our salvation, so seriously to plan it at exactly the right moment in history, then surely your timing is always perfect. And we celebrate with you. As we celebrate the birth of Christ and remember his redemption, remember his adoption of us into his family, remember his promise of giving us all things as heirs, Lord, we do so with humility and awe for who you are. 
Thank you, Father, for who you are and what you've done in our lives and what you will do in the future and for the future redemption of all things and the second coming of Christ, which will be just as certain and just as perfectly timed as the first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.